Well, I'm sure there are some children out there wondering how many peppermints this sermon is going to take. And mothers may be wondering if they have enough. But uh, with God's help and um, His Spirit guiding us, I know we'll receive a blessing. Would you just pray with me before we open God's Word together? Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you now again, trusting that your Spirit is alive and active in your Word. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, move again in a powerful way, that your word may come alive for us. Lord, that you may touch hearts and use this humble servant, Lord, to bring a fresh perspective to a word that is forever new and meaningful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus in a chapter that I am sure is not unfamiliar to you, but often um, gets overlooked as we focus on the incredible story of the uh, plagues and the escape that happens in the beginning 14 chapters. So I uh, think it's on page 139 in your pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to read Exodus 33, verses 1 through 23 together. Where we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people that you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the Tent of Meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, 
so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. For how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if... um, you can remember a time, or the last time actually, when you were lost. That is really lost. You know, when you truly didn't know which way to turn next in order to get back on the route or back on track towards your destination. In today's world of GPS and Google Maps at our fingertips, I'm afraid that concept is becoming harder and harder to imagine for many of us. It seems the the hardest decision we face these days as far as getting to our destination is selecting which voice option we want Google to speak to us, to not only tell us which way to turn, but which lane to get in so we don't miss the turn as it's coming up. Do we want to listen to that cool Australian guy or do we want the sophisticated UK woman? telling us which way to turn. Well, I can tell you that getting lost was a pretty common phenomenon for me. Before those days of GPS in every device and in every car. Strangely, it still is a rather common phenomenon for me, in fact. And I'm not sure why that is exactly, but I'm guessing it might have something to do with my... um, choice to often take the road less traveled and my preference for the scenic route to get where I'm going. Apparently the signal strength isn't very strong on many of those roads that I seem to be gravitate towards. But who needs all that newfangled technology anyways, right? When you've got that gut instinct, you know, that reliable gut instinct to get wherever you're going? Well, Whatever the reason may be, I've experienced that gnawing sensation in my pit of my stomach more than, on more than one occasion. 
when I've suddenly realized that I've gotten off course somehow and I have no clue how to get back on track. In fact, my mother and father-in-law, who happen to be with us here today, can probably recall a few of those occasions. But in any case, there, there are times when that happens. And, and as you know, it's, it's a time when you really need to stop and take stock of your situation before deciding what your next step should be. After all, your life may depend on it. And it's in those moments when I think we truly realize who we can depend on to guide us. Well, in many ways, I believe it was precisely that kind of predicament that the Israelites found themselves in at the opening of this chapter. On this point in their long journey towards the promised land, after their miraculous escape from the bondage they they experienced for hundreds of years in Egypt. And so I believe this chapter actually represents one of the worst cases ever of people feeling lost. Because as this chapter opens, Israel suddenly realized that they didn't know what their next step should be in order to reach their destination. A destination which they longed to get to and and a destination which which they had dreamed of and, and heard of ever since they were children. All they knew for sure in this particular moment is that it would be futile for them to move anywhere unless God went with them. And for that reason, I believe that that this chapter might actually represent the climax within this whole story of the book of Exodus, even more so than the crossing of the Red Sea, where they experienced that freedom from slavery in Egypt for the first time. Because you see, being free means nothing if you're still lost. And here in chapter 33, Israel suddenly realized just how lost they would be if their God decided he would no longer go with them, not only as their Savior, but also as their guide. As astounding as it was for Israel when they watched God wipe out Pharaoh's army, when those parted waters of the Red Sea came crashing back down upon them, Here, Israel realized, perhaps for the first time, that they too would be utterly lost in this effort of crossing that wilderness, in that that long-standing dream of, of realizing the joy that they longed for in their promised land. Without God's presence, even if they could reach it, it would probably mean nothing. You see, that feeling of being lost is not only something that happens when we discover that we've lost our way. It also happens when we discover that our destination is beyond any hope of really being reached. This whole purpose for their journey through through that terrible wilderness was suddenly being called into question as they heard the words of God which Moses spoke to them in verse 3 of our text. Where God says, go on, basically, go ahead, 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And then in verse 5, when when those words are repeated as, as sort of the context or the reason for Israel's mourning, we see there that God actually said, if I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Wow. Those must have been some pretty hard words to hear. Especially after experiencing all that God had done already on their behalf to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. And all the things that that He had done during those three or so months to bring them to this sacred place there at the base of Mount Sinai. All the things that they witnessed that they never before dreamed were possible until Moses came to deliver them as God's appointed servant. Even though God still promised to send an angel before them to drive out the wicked inhabitants of Canaan, they now began to wonder, could that land ever really be home if God was not there with them? Would they ever truly find the rest that they longed for without his presence among them? You see, I think all these questions began running through their soul, through the very soul of God's people, when they heard those words. For somewhere deep in the heart of every child of God, I think we know that the real basis of our hope in reaching that promised land does not lie within its resources or its natural beauty. But actually it lies in having the beauty of God's glory. All of His power and His love and yes, His grace right there at the center of our lives. As the foundation of our community and of our hope. For no matter where we might find ourselves on this journey toward our ultimate destination with God, I believe that the same thing is still true of us today. Which is why I believe this climactic chapter is still so crucial for each of us. Especially, perhaps, as we might be wrestling with with all of those fears and questions that seem to often come up during this time of year. Right in the midst of all of the joyful celebrations when, when everyone seems to have something of the magic of Christmas. When everybody seems to be so filled with the joy and and the victory of Christ's birth. And yet we wonder, what will this new year bring for us? Questions like, will God still go with me even after all of the mistakes that I've made? After all of the things that I've done wrong this year? Or maybe does God even still care about where I'm going? Will He still be able to use me? Am I ever going to experience that that sense of, of victory and joy that seems so possible for everyone else? Why do I still feel so lost even though I've been saved according to all these promises 
in God's Word? Well, if you are struggling with any of those questions, as I often have, let me assure you that there's some tremendous hope within this chapter, even though it begins with those very distressing words for the people of Israel in verse 3. Of course, that's the question, isn't it, that, that we must answer as, as we try to unpack what God is, is speaking for us and, and what the truth is that he has for us in this climactic chapter. Why would God ever say such a thing? Especially after everything that he has done already to rescue these stiff-necked people. Why would the same God who, who answered Israel's prayers by saving the baby Moses from that murderous decree of Pharaoh and all the destructive waters of the Nile in that simple little reed basket which his mother placed him in, to actually allow him to be carried into the protective care of Pharaoh's wife? And why would the same God who, who later called that Moses from a burning bush while he was a fugitive in the land of Midian to go back to Pharaoh's palace in order to deliver that impossible message to the strongest king that, that ever lived, Pharaoh. That message, let my people go so that they may worship me. Why would that same God who then sent those ten terrible plagues on Egypt every time Pharaoh refused in order to display his unmistakable power, his undeniable authority, which was greater than any gods that Egypt claimed were there to rescue her? Why would that same God who then made a way through the Red Sea in order to seal their escape why would that same God now say to these people that he is unable to spend even one moment with them without potentially destroying them? Well, in case you haven't guessed it already or read it lately, let me remind you about what has just happened in chapter, 20, in chapter 32. That's right, the whole golden calf episode. In the opening six verses of that previous chapter, we see Israel commit this incredible act of rebellion. Something so unthinkable, something so unimaginable. And they do it so easily and so quickly as if it were no big deal at all. Almost as if it were the only natural thing for a nation of recently rescued people to do when they suddenly find themselves stuck out there in the middle of the Sinai Mountains without their faithful leader, Moses, for just a few weeks. Back in chapter 24, you can read about how Moses left the Israelite camp to go up on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, which had clearly been inhabited by the glory of God, in order to receive from him the detailed instructions for this new covenant life that he was about to embark on with his people. You see, clearly God desired to share something special with these newly redeemed people. And it says in chapter 24, verse 17, that to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of that mountain. 
And when Moses entered the cloud as he went up that mountain, and he stayed up there for 40 days and 40 nights, the people clearly took their eyes off of that mountain and began looking at the wilderness around them. And now just to be clear, after this nation of newly rescued people had been without Moses for probably about a month, they suddenly gathered around Aaron, the appointed leader and mediator in Moses' absence, and they strongly suggested this idea that he should make a new God for them. A God who will go before us, they said. Because as for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron doesn't even blink an eye. As he readily tells them to bring him all of their golden earrings, and then fashions all of that gold into an idol in the shape of a calf. And they begin to worship this calf, saying, This is the God who will lead us now. One month. One month. That's all it took for the people of Israel and their designated priestly leader to totally reject the God that they had seen and experienced so personally as he led them to this sacred place and who was at that very moment giving Moses his instructions for their new life with him on top of the mountain right in front of them. As far as that ancient culture was concerned, or perhaps any, any culture ever since, that sin represented the ultimate sin. This was the granddaddy of all idolatry. This was sinful pride and rebellion at its worst. Israel practically spitting in God's face, even after all that he had so clearly done to rescue them. Now the grumbling and the complaining about their new living conditions during that journey, that I can understand. Especially after seeing how harsh and desolate that Sinai Peninsula actually is with my own eyes this summer. On an amazing trip Yvonne and I were able to take where we actually visited the Sinai Peninsula and, and camped up on Mount Sinai or a mountain very close in proximity to it. You see, the Israelites had plenty of reasons to grumble for being out there in that harsh environment. But this blatant idolatry and rejection of God's leadership after he had so clearly brought them to this place and so incredibly delivered them from their slavery. Well, that kind of sin should give any of us reason for pause. And that's why I believe God recorded it. Right here in the the climactic scene, in this amazing story of redemption. Because there are three important takeaways, I believe, from, from this amazing chapter that still apply for each of us. And the first one is that the holiness of God is not something we should take lightly. And in fact, that holiness of God is a consuming fire. When God said, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way, he was not speaking as as some kind of hot-tempered, out-of-control husband 
who was acting out of some petty jealousy for his fickle new wife. No. This was a very honest and serious response of a holy God who yet was was still committed to the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while recognizing that he could not abide in the presence of sin. You see, I'm afraid we may never be able to comprehend just how difficult it is for God to remain in the presence of our sin and rebellion. How is it that that we could even imagine such a pure and intense light radiating from God's holiness that it will actually shine brighter than the sun on that day when he comes to, to actually establish his kingdom forever with us when Christ returns? How is it that we could even imagine such a pure and intense light that that is brighter than the sun somehow coexisting while in close proximity to the kinds of darkness that spread from the lives of those who who actually act and live as if he doesn't exist? The kinds of darkness that that not only scorn God's holiness and and His goodness, but that actually cause such pain and destruction and grief to those around them, that it utterly ruins this beautiful creation that He gave for us to enjoy with Him forever. How is it possible for the source of all love and power to so restrain Himself from putting an immediate stop to those kinds of actions. Especially when the pain and the grief that he sees in this beautiful world separates us from that very love. You see, calling forth the billions of frogs and flies that infested Egypt, in two of those plagues that demonstrated his power over the gods of the Nile, that was nothing for God. Even changing the water of that incredible Nile River into blood and somehow blocking the sun's light to make it so pitch black that all of Egypt longed for that sun to reappear. The sun that they worshipped as their provider god, Ra. All of that was child's play for the God of Israel. Restraining the angel of death from taking the firstborn from every faithful household among the children of Israel who put the blood of a lamb on their doorframe, that was as simple as holding up his finger and saying, not that one. And parting the waters of the Red Sea was like blowing a puff of air. For this amazing God who created this universe by the simple command of His voice. But now remaining with these people. Remaining with these people on this journey to their promised land. While they continue to follow their sinful pride and the destructive desires of their flesh. And actually desiring the gods of Egypt over Him. That was a challenge. 
That would be the ultimate test of God's resolve. That would be the the amazing, uh, unthinkable, unfathomable miracle for him to accomplish. You see, his deep desire to provide for their freedom was great. And providing for that redemption was nothing. But remaining with these people on the way to that promised land, now that was something that gave God pause. And I believe God gave us this picture of that struggle to abide with his sinful people in order to help us appreciate the depth of his love as well as the essential nature of his holiness, as we recognize that his glory is indeed a consuming fire that God miraculously needs to restrain from consuming even us. But then, as the chapter continues, there's something about this faithful obedience And the humble pleading of Moses on behalf of God's people that actually moves God to do the very things that he asks. Isn't that incredible? That this simple man, this this man who who said he he didn't have any ability to speak, this man who, who tried to negotiate with God a way out of being his deliverer there at the burning bush, This simple man who may have even had a speech impediment now becomes a prayer warrior and an intercessor on behalf of God's people to do the impossible. Somehow, through the pleading prayers of Moses, God says that he will do the very things that he asked for. That is, to to allow God to, to reveal himself to us in an even more intimate way. And to guarantee that his presence would actually continue to go with us. Despite that tendency and predisposition that we have to reject him again and again. Quite frankly, Moses asked the thing that, that we would never dare to ask ourselves. And the most amazing thing about this chapter is that God actually concedes. In this chapter, we see Moses become the ideal mediator whom God himself raised up for the sake of remaining with these sinful people. I don't think God actually was somehow surprised at himself that that he conceded to these prayers. Those prayers were necessary The the actions of Moses were were as essential for this journey of redemption as that miracle of parting the Red Sea was. But God provided it. God knew and, and foreknew all along from the time that Moses was a baby that he would come to this very moment. And that God had prepared and equipped Moses to be that mediator. And that he was the one who found such special favor with God that he could approach God on behalf of God's people for that very special grace and guidance they needed is as amazing as anything. Of course God was about to reveal everything necessary for the construction of the tabernacle to Moses 
there on that Mount Sinai. But already here in the special relationship between God and His chosen prophet and priest, we get this beautiful picture of God's compassion and His his willingness to accommodate His glory so that we could become close to Him and know Him more fully whenever we humbly seek Him. Even though no one may ever see God's face and live, we see that He is willing and able to let us get closer than we could ever imagine. Even despite our sinful condition, because there is something about the way that God is pleased with this request of Moses. And how God is, is pleased and moved by that desire within Moses' heart. A desire which God himself has planted there for us to have that communion restored with him. I think it's hard for us to imagine the relief and the renewed hope that this picture must have given Israel as New Testament believers. Because we've never had to imagine God being so unapproachable, being so consuming that we could never have such an intimate relationship with with Him. And that's what leads me to the second most essential takeaway from this climactic chapter in Exodus. For not only is God a consuming fire, but God has provided for us an even more perfect mediator than Moses. There is no limit to how far God is willing to go to renew that communion which pleases Him more than anything. God was willing to go so far to restore this relationship that is threatened continually by our sin that He was willing to allow His own beloved Son to not only become our priest, a priest that was by far exceeding or or superior than Moses, as we read in Hebrews, but that he would actually allow that son to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins once and for all. Oh, Moses was an incredible mediator for God's people. But he was a mere shadow, a faint glimpse or, or just a a minuscule foreshadowing of the ultimate mediator that God would raise up for us. Moses himself told his people in Deuteronomy 18 as he was saying his farewell speech to them before they would actually enter the promised land without him. In that farewell speech he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you another prophet like me from among your own brothers. And you must listen to him. And the Lord will put his words in this prophet's mouth. And he will tell you everything that the Lord commands. Now wouldn't it be foolish if we did not listen to him? Yes, this prophecy referred to all the prophets that God would later call to speak on his behalf. But ultimately it referred to the one that God would raise as his most perfect representative. The one who would reveal his grace and truth completely. And that's exactly how John introduces him in the opening of his gospel. In John 1 verses 14 and 17 to 18. Where we read and celebrate this season that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
And we have seen His glory. That is the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, except God, the one and only, who is now at the Father's side and who has made Him known for us. Brothers and sisters, that leads me to this very important lesson from the final picture that we have of Moses in our text. Because we should never mistake how God wanted to reveal Himself to Moses. How He wanted more than anything to proclaim His name as He passed by. Because He wanted Moses to know Him more intimately. And He wanted Israel's people to also know Him more intimately as they then followed this mediator as they listened to Him and obeyed the commands that God would speak through Him. In fact, as they would learn to trust Him more and more completely, their true essential freedom would be found. And so it is for us. If you feel lost, if you feel like like maybe you aren't experiencing the victory and the joy that, that everyone seems to be celebrating in this Christmas season over that unspeakable gift of God's Son, then I invite you to pray the same prayer that Moses prayed and mean it from the depth of your heart. Where he prays in verse 13, If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. No matter how far you have walked away from God, No matter how many times you have rejected Him and committed the unthinkable by scorning His grace and living according to the ways of darkness, following the desires of our flesh, listening to the fears and the pride that that overtakes us in this life, even as God's redeemed people. This picture is our pointer to God's greatest desire for us. If we would but ask to see His glory. If we would but pray in earnest that God would never leave us, but in fact make Himself even more and more clearly known. As this picture ends with that beautiful scene of of God placing Moses gently in the cleft of that rock. And in fact covering him there with his hand, it says, as he passes by, proclaiming his name over and over. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I have mercy and compassion on you. I have proved it. I have shown it to you over and over. And so let my name resound in your ears. Let the reality of my presence and my power overshadow you, even as I hold you there in the cleft of the rock. The beautiful hymn that I'm sure you know, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, gives us that beautiful truth that if we but hide ourselves in Christ... He becomes that cleft. 
He becomes that, that rock of ages for us. As we sing, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed become for me the double cure to make me guilt-free and make me pure. Again and again, as we go to the cross of Christ, He becomes that cleft. And God's name becomes real and, and His power and His truth and His victory over guilt and sin becomes afresh. So brothers and sisters, are you doing everything you can to hide yourself in Christ? Are you devoting yourself to knowing Him, to praying in earnest that God would guide you in the morning and in the noon and yes, in the night as you reflect back and ask His mercy again for each new day? As this new year comes, and we don't know what it brings, one thing I do know, that God is faithful to His promises, and that His desire has never changed from the day that He rescued His original chosen people to the day that He rescued you and I. His desire is for us to know Him, to experience the communion that He designed for us from the beginning, and which He has promised as our inheritance when we but follow him in faith. Would you pray with me as we enter this year that God would restore us to that glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these powerful pictures that show us not only the consuming fire of your holiness, but in fact the greatest desire of all, that you would so powerfully accommodate yourself to enter into our sin and become the sacrifice that we needed. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus. Again, in this season, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with all that that gift means and that, Father, we would never walk away from you but claim the promise that Jesus gives that he would never leave us nor forsake us and, in fact, that if we but cry to you as our Abba Father, you will receive us and bring us exactly where you intend us to be. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.